Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and welcome again to PASIC 2021 Week. This is episode 267 of the show and part two of our preview episode for the upcoming 2021 Percussive Arts Society International Convention. As mentioned in part one, hopefully you'll be able to be there in person though there are a number of great events also being held virtually during this time. Go to PASIC.org for more details. As also mentioned in part one, I'll be previewing some of the events that will be going on in a few days and having some of the folks involved to talk about those events. I'll also be there, so please find me at some point. In part one, I talked to folks who were presenting on Thursday and on Friday, And today, I'll be covering folks who will be presenting on Friday and on Saturday. So let's get to some of these sessions with five guests on today's show. First up, Quentin Millette. Quentin is a percussionist, educator, performer, and all-around insightful person whose primary teaching responsibility is at the HBCU Fayetteville State University in North Carolina. Quentin will be presenting his research during the Scholarly Research Lightning Session A on Friday at 9 a.m. in Room 201 in the Convention Center. Here's Quentin discussing his research and the wide range of topics that it covers. So, Quentin, tell me what you are presenting at PASIC and when you're presenting. Sure. So I'm presenting Friday morning at nine o'clock and I'm presenting a a research paper, um, which is being tailored for the format um, a little bit. And the basis of it is born out of this idea of students not being ready for certain spaces. Um, I've wanted to, you know, give clinics at schools and they say, oh, I don't have any students that are ready for that. Um, and I've always kind of looked slightly odd, like, what do you mean? Like I can teach anything, <laughs> you know, what do you, you know? Um, and so, um, that kind of coupled with this idea of kind of a double existence for percussion, right? We, we have percussion within classical spaces, and then we also have percussion in, you know, vernacular spaces as just jazz and folk music and, and different global styles and the issues of diversity and inclusion that they face are very different. Um, but holistically, if we look at percussion, it's quite diverse. And, and so I began to wonder, like, why does diversity and inclusion within classical spaces matter? And, and so what I'm actually arguing and kind of what I'm asking in terms of my research question is, why is diversity and inclusion within classical spaces so difficult and why is it important? Um, especially when we look at this broader field of percussion being quite diverse. And so in my dis- dissertation, I began to dabble with this idea of elocutionary force um, as a concept for kind of understanding the viability of performers analysis, because there's this, this you know, study of performance studies where, you know, people are talking about, you know, existing performances. And there's some stuff that's kind of quite disparaging for us that, you know, identify as performers. I'm like, you know, hey, our observations matter too. You know, maybe they're not all highfalutin, but you know, they're, they're important to us at least. And they make a difference in how we see performance. And so I began to dabble with that concept there. And I also came across the concept of ecological systems theory by Ruffenbrenner, um, which talks about kind of the spheres of influence. And so what my paper is actually going to be talking about is how that relates to um, how we perceive performance aptitude in percussion. You know, are these assessments truly evaluating what we think of as performance aptitude? And as we develop diverse spaces, um, 
are we also diversifying what we see as performance aptitude? And so within this paper, I propose a model for performance aptitude, not necessarily as an existing entity within an individual, um, but more as a process that it has a system that involves, you know, whatever their perceived musical knowledge is, um, that then is input into different aspects of practice, things that might be slightly more theoretical, um, things that might be based more along listening, and then how they input that into their personal practice, and then how that practice comes out with some sort of reading or interpretation of the piece, and then there's a feedback loop between those two things, and then those go back and inform their musical knowledge, which then informs this whole process. And, you know, the ability to be able to go through that process um, is what I argue is performance aptitude. Um, and so where this kind of matters and where I think the discussion is important for percussion and, and what I kind of propose in this paper is that if we change what we view as musical aptitude, um, then we can be more inclusive with which students can be successful in that process. If musical aptitude is no longer just, can you play this scale at this tempo? Or even, do you know this scale? Um, can you play this rudiment on command? Um, if it's more inclusive to, yeah, those things are important. They're foundational for understanding, you know, motives and ideas and reading music and developing things. And they save a lot of time. Um, but we've probably also had students who in one way or another excel at that aspect of it. But when it comes to playing a phrase really struggle. Um, and so by implying that, that, that a skill attainment in the traditional musicology somehow is going to denote a higher musical aptitude than say someone who is a church drummer you know, who does not know a scale, who could not play a rudiment on command, yet their musical aptitude is extremely high with what they can do with a phrase, with what they can do with the rudiments that they're playing that they don't even know are rudiments, right? Um, and so if we can be more inclusive for what are those skills, what are those things that they're doing that are important? Um, and how can we also include that into our assessment and, and how we view someone as ready for a certain space, whether that's um, an honor band, whether that's an undergraduate institution, um, you know, different things that are actually going to lead to them being really excited about music, um, you know, and, and so that's, in a nutshell, that's kind of what my, my paper is going to talk about. Okay. So, uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's like the coffee is, is still like, it's still processing. That was, I mean, that was amazing, but I was sitting, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many concepts to, to try to keep up with. So. Let's let's uh, let's talk about this because this this was this was amazing kind of the way that you've set this up. So so give me a little bit of sense of of what are the um, the ways into this particular topic, because clearly it seems like you kind of stumbled on something. And then as you kept researching, you it, it kept opening up different ways in. Right. That that you may you may not have even thought of originally. Tell me a little bit about the process of of seeing this kind of as a as a whole. Absolutely, and that's a wonderful question because it really is like this. All of a sudden, this system of like, hey, wait, that connects with this, and this connects with this. And um, I think kind of the the foundational thing that I want to talk about um, related to your question is the idea of illocutionary force. And this was something that like I had no awareness of. Um, but it's kind of drawn from speech act theory by this philosopher, J.L. Austin. And the idea is the level of impact that we perceive our speech is going to be accepted as valid, right? So if I stand up here and, and you know, I'm, I'm speaking confidently and I'm saying words that seem to work together and make sense, I have a reasonable 
um, degree of ability in thinking that you're going to believe what I'm saying and not be like, let me Google that real quick. Um, And so like, there's a fairly strong amount of elocutionary force there. Um, But if I, you know, take it to like, say I'm cooking a soup for dinner for my family and my son says, ew, that soup is disgusting. Um, And my wife says, ew, that soup is disgusting. They don't have the same level of elocutionary force, right? I view my son like, oh gosh, he's just complaining, right? My wife says that I'm like, oh my gosh, I substituted sugar for salt, right? Like, right. like there's some sort of major <laughs> issue there. Yeah. Um, and so that's like, I think at a, at a foundational level, like that's kind of the underlying push that kind of led me to look into this because there are different levels of acceptance. We do view, you know, one level of musical skill attainment very differently than the other. And kind of why is that? And so the next thing that I came about was trying to find like the words to explain this, like, you know, um, and kind of almost like this pit in my stomach that felt like, you know, I, you know, in the past with the pandemic, we began to notice um, diversity and inclusion becoming a buzzword. And we're seeing a lot of solutions. Oddly enough, this paper was actually proposed Um, (laughs) pre-pandemic. So it kind of worked out that it actually began pushed back, but um, I, I wanted to find these, these words for really expressing why it, it didn't quite fit that just giving additional recess resources or just giving, you know, applied lessons to someone doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to come out on the end of this with lasting diversity and inclusion. Right. Um, you know, at some level, we actually have to broaden what it means to be a musician and what it means to make music. And what I love about this idea of diversity is, you know, it instantly kind of puts us in this frame of mind of, you know, racial diversity or gender diversity. Um, But really, it's just about ideas. You know, I think we could look at, you know, marching versus concert percussion and see that sometimes those spheres don't always talk to each other and they don't always understand and appreciate that we're all doing same sides of the same thing. And yet within the academy, you know, concert percussion has a stronger elocutionary force, you know, when it goes about doing things than, than the marching side of the world. And, and that shouldn't be the case. Well, right? you know, that doesn't even yeah. get into the um, core style versus show style. Right. HBCU, right. PWI <laughs> splits on those kinds of things too. Absolutely. And so that's kind of what, what I, what I liked about this topic is like, this is a way in, but it is a much broader issue that we can talk about a lot of the kind of segments of percussion and kind of eventually bring them in as a, a larger research umbrella of kind of like ways to go. Um, and so that's when I stumbled upon the ecological systems theory and um, it sounds really fancy and it's, it's not really that fancy. Like most things that we talk about, it's really not that fancy, but it's like, it's just a word that all of a sudden gives us, you know, the vocabulary for discussing these things. And, um, and the idea is that there's four interconnected systems and one kind of floating system. Um, so the micro, you have the individual, like you, you or my, myself, um, in the center and the entities that we interact with are our microsystems. So like, um, as a student, my music educators, my family, um, I played baseball. So my baseball coach, um, I went to church. And so my, my church community, all of those things are going to be a part of my microsystem, my friends outside of music, my friends inside of music. Um, the meso system is going to be how those communities speak to each other and how they communicate and how they interact. Um, so, you know, for example, if I'm trying to practice on the weekends and none of my friends are musicians, that communication, that relationship is very heavily going to influence how I see practice as a part of what I do and who I am. 
the next kind of level of the system is the exosystem. And this is all of those spaces that directly affect the individual that that individual is not actually involved in. As the student, like your the relationship your band director has at home or has with their principal is directly going to influence you, but you are not involved in that space. You don't actually really realize that it's going on. You know, yeah. you're just like, why are they in a really bad mood today? Yeah, um, yeah right. You know? <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then lastly, we kind of have this macro system effect, right? Or influence. And, and that's the larger governing bodies that are going to have an influence on kind of how we create change and how we do things. Um, and so we could think of like the PAS 40 rudiments is, is a macro system influence on all of us, because here's this gigantic body of, you know, percussion um, force that's saying, hey, these foundational skills are really important and you're going to see them in your playing. Um, and so you should really pay attention to them. And so that has a trickle down effect. Like we all are going to be impacted by that. Um, and the last one is, is the chronosystem effect, which actually, like I said, this was proposed pre-pandemic. And then like, I didn't really get chronosystem until the pandemic. And that's the effect of, of, of events over time. So like all of a sudden the influence of like the pandemic completely changed how we teach percussion, how we learn percussion and, and what that is like. And it's just this moment in time, you know, and yes, it could have a lasting effect, but that moment in time is going to really differentiate for what it means to study percussion, um, at least during that, that time period. So that's kind of how I came about it. Um, it really was all grounded in this idea of, you know, force and elocutionary force, like how the viability of different things in different spaces, and then coming across this theory and realizing, okay, here's a vocabulary that actually allows me to talk about this in a way that kind of makes sense and, and to ex express that to others. Because I, I was thinking of one of the, uh, what was the, the macro system? Mm -hmm. I was thinking because that's also can be like state government that gives money to universities that then spend it on marching bands, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those are, those are. I feel like I'm I'm not I'm not I'm only brushing the surface when I'm asking these questions. But like, at what point were you like, oh, it's it's like I have to learn. You know about like like public speaking entities and philosophy and like all these things that I hadn't planned on maybe researching. It's one of those things. Well, I you know my wife is also we were in graduate school together, and mm -hmm. um, so you know we often have you know talks about different things and we explore things together, and we're. I'll, I'll say we're, we're chronic Googlers, right? So mm -hmm. you know, like you know, she'll say, "Oh yeah, you know." gray is actually, you know, this kind of a color. And I'm like, oh yeah, really? Like while I'm like typing it into Google, like just to see like, all right, what can I say about gray? You know, what is this? How does this make sense? And so, um, you know, with that, I'll say chronic condition, you know, like it's just, I, you know, I come across, I'm like, well, I actually wonder like, is this the case? Like, and, you know, several hours later after falling into this rabbit hole, I'm like, oh, wow, like this is a thing, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of how the process, I guess, works on my end. One thing that that you know you kind of struck upon is that is the ways that we that we have systems that are built that have supported the weight of the you know of, of the concert player, for instance, who reads music having this this one level, this higher level, and then we're discounting, as you said, the church drummer who okay, maybe they don't read music, and then there's just this decision that they don't have the same level, but what they're 
but what their skill is is maybe being a much better listener and a much better improviser um, and actually have the ability to retain a billion songs and song styles in their head <laughs> is a different skill set. And we're not yes. giving that the same credence, right? Exactly. No, and that's that's exactly it. And um, one of, I guess, part of one of the aha moments that I had that came into this, I had a student um, audition for the program at Fable State and they didn't read any music, but they had fantastic hands. Yeah. And I did a little social experiment with them. You know, I was like, all right, so I'm going to sing this rhythm to them. And it was this exercise that I got from, you know, the Kuhn snare drum book, which kind of goes from very simple to very complex rhythms. And, and so I said, all right, here's our beat, you know, and I established the beat and I sang this rhythm and I said, all right, play that back to me. And they played it back to me. And I said, all right, I want you to play it back to me while looking at this music. And so they did. Um, And then, you know, I had them, I sang another rhythm, you know, a subdivision of that. And, and I had them, you know, look at that. I was like, all right, so just play it back to me. I just want you to look at this while you do it. Um, and then I was like, all right, so now I want you to play the measure below that, which was kind of use both rhythms, you know, because it's one of those books and they did. And it was like, and it wasn't me. Like I didn't do this. Like the student had it there. They just needed the confidence to know that they had it in there. Yeah. And it was like, oh my gosh, like this is not, you know, like you said, they are different skills and they're not necessarily you know, they're not against each other. They, right. they all work together, like, you know, towards this, this total musical aptitude. You know, we're not, we're not at odds at all. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's amazing. Uh, I, and, cause, and, that, and that's a tremendous thing. I, I wish I'd kind of, I had thought of that, of, of making that progression. I, I would do sometimes with, when, when I, when I was teaching um, some students privately and I would have, I would do kind of a similar thing with, um, if we taught stuff by rote, like on a snare line and, and then I would have them like, try to write it out, you know, it w- after giving some like kind of theor- some theoretical feedback and it was, they kind of got it, but I think your, but I was like that your method is actually makes more sense. Um, I stole it from, you know, the, uh, the inner game of tennis, you know, that's oh, nice. Yeah. Right. You know, like, yeah. you know, it's, it's like allow them to see this in practice. Like don't focus on the reading, you know? <laughs> oh, that's good. All right. All right. I'm, yeah, I will be taking notes as I, as I edit later on. <laughs> this is going to be amazing. Another thing that I thought was that, that among the many things you said that, that I thought I really kind of, I, I latched onto was this idea that, and it's like within the IDE realm where, where it may be see, trying to see something as trying to be solved when it's not, that's not really the, the thing. It's not as if we go, oh, we fixed it and IDE is done. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah. I didn't know, like, I, so I, like on that element, I, I'm curious, is that, was that always kind of wrapped in this particular idea you were presenting or did that, was that added more so because again, as you said, uh, like pandemic and, and how that's come up more often? Yeah, that that's kind of evolved with, with the pandemic, you know, and, and I've actually been quite, you know, excited to see there's been a lot of groups coming up. You're really trying to influence the amount of resources available um, to these underrepresented voices in percussion. Yeah. And that's wonderful. Um, but it only affects this very small part of the system, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it really just has kind of a micro system effect. 
Um, perhaps, you know, it, it has a bit of a macro system effect as we try to start to create big policy that is like being inclusive, but it has no exosystem effect, right? Like in terms of like, what are we doing to support the voices kind of in the middle um, that are also where their instructors are involved? Like, how are we in giving them empowering and listening to their concerns and kind of dealing with how they approach things? How are we dealing with the families of these students, right? You know, how are we dealing with you know, giving them support for their friend spaces where this may be very counter to how they identify. Um, if we look at, you know, the broad swath of gender, you may be in a place where no one else is identifying in the way that you do. And they're also not in the same activities. And so we're all human, right? And so that kind of draws you away from this space, no matter what sort of tangible resources you have, that's those sort of intellectual resources and support aren't there to be like, it's okay. You know, here's, you can do this, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think that that is definitely something that's kind of evolved through the pandemic. It's like, well, I actually have to include this piece um, because this is why it's not, it's not enough. It's not like a, Hey, we're solved. And likewise, it's, it's something that has to constantly be tended towards. Um, I, I wrote this, uh, article for notes and, and in there I, I talk about, you know, the idea of, um, so like this kind of goes off on, on a bit of a tangent, but like the, the hegemony of the marimba and, you know, uh, the canons of, of music and kind of like pushing for this canon and, yeah. um, and really, you know, one of the things I mentioned in there that I think is important is that there could be a point potentially where we get so into, you know, like trying to fix the problem that we've countered the balance, right? And so we also have to tend to it to make sure that we don't tip the balance so much that, you know, right, we have this space, but now, you know, this one group that used to feel represented feels completely abandoned. Um, and that means like that is the entity of diversity and inclusion, like is tending to the process to make sure that it's equitable, um, no matter how it leans that, you know, people do feel welcome, that they do feel like their voice is heard and that their experiences are valid. Yeah. I, I think of this in terms of, uh, I'll think of this in, in terms of gender, but it's like, well, we have a lot of, maybe we do have, there's a lot of um, female identifying people who are in, who who might be in some of the marching, you know, the pageantry arts and DCI and stuff like that in in some leadership positions. But not necessarily uh, caption heads or leading the entire group, but they might be relegated to like a subsection of a brass. And that's as far up as they may get, you know? And, and so that's not, yeah. it's like, that's, it's like getting them in is one aspect, but making sure that they also get up, you know, get to the highest levels and can start, filtering down is also is another part of this, you know? Yes. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Racially too. I mean, that's, yeah, that's of course. it's the same kind of idea. Yeah. 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 No, I, exactly. I think that is exactly it. And one of the things, like you said, I think, you know, one of the things I, I, I have, I struggle with, as you probably can tell already is, you know, um, fine-tuning ideas to very specific entities, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a very global thinker. Um, and um, uh, one of the issues that I, I kind of got to for like, you know, why, why, why does it matter, this representation, you know, in, in classical spaces is, is also because there's a certain elocutionary force for art music versus vernacular music, 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of the policy that affects education, a lot of those decisions are made by individuals in art music, right? The academy is heavily influenced by art music. Yeah. And so in, in that space, you know, if we don't have people who are in places to make decisions within this genre, even though like it has, you know, less popularity, it has probably less income producing ability, but yeah. it has the decision-making ability. And, it's, and you mentioned that, like getting people in a, in a place where they are, are visible and they're making policy is important for inclusion because that's where the trickle down is going to happen for how we, you know, establish how we talk about things, how we deal with things, how we approach education, how we approach performance aptitude, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's completely. Wow. Yeah. And we, sometimes and one of the ways, I don't know if you, if, if you, you're running into this, but one of the ways that that I think shows up is trying to get more pop music or vernacular music, which is the better term for that, uh, as, as you stated, vernacular, but getting more of that in the curriculum and, just and 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 then the 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 comeback is well what are you taking out i was like well i we but we we have to put some of this in <laughs> like <laughs> yes yes and yes and like I, I hear that argument all the time and number one like it's valid i totally get it yeah yeah you know um and you know to me i i i go to like the orchestras right mm-hmm. so like i hear an argument like all right you know if you want me to stop teaching beethoven 9 like, how am I going to prepare, prepare them for these orchestral auditions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is orchestras don't have Beethoven 9 because they're planning on scheduling Beethoven 9 that season, right? It's yeah. Beethoven 9 is about, can you play sensitively in an ensemble? Right. You know, can you blend? Can you score study? Can you understand the role of this instrument and, and change your touch to fit that? Right. And Beethoven 9 does that so beautifully within a very short amount of time. Yeah. But the piece is, it's never about Beethoven 9. It's always about what is the skill that they're trying to show by choosing Beethoven 9. Right. And so by in, in diversifying our repertoire, we're not saying no to Beethoven. We're not saying no to taking out these things. Right. We're saying yes to the skills that these things outline. You know, and yeah. it's like, yeah, oh, we're not taking out anything. We're just, we're just enhancing this story and we're involving, hey, you know what? We can also learn form from popular forms, Right. We can also, you know, learn a lot about ear training from using, you know, popular music. We can, like, we're not taking anything out. We're just broadening the scope to more reflect the world that these students are going into. And we're not going to think so narrowly about our established art music that it is about this piece. It's not about the piece, you know, because it's about what this piece shows. It's about the skill attainment. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's, a, that's awesome. I, I, like that that feedback about about that particular piece though is is also it's also a reflection of that person who's teaching it just like laziness like let's be honest like that's what this is <laughs> like because i've taught because I, my teacher taught beethoven nine and i gotta teach beethoven nine it's <laughs> like yeah yeah if, if you teach soft snare drumming and, you know, like say you take like all your rudimental solos and you play them at pianissimo, yeah, yeah. you're going to be able to play KJ and Scheherazade. Right. Yes. Right. You know, yes. it's, it's not about the excerpt. It's about the techniques, you know? Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, kind of relatedly, and I, this sounded like one of the first things that you mentioned, because one thing that, that, that also has come up with, 
the with IDE elements, particularly as it relates to the classical side, is that is you know a group like groups like the Sphinx and um, or excuse me, Sphinx organization, and there are others, Color of, of Music, and and some others where they are specifically dedicated to creating like the next generation of specifically African-American and, or just underrepresented groups. And then, so that's kind of one element. And then there's the element of trying to get those individuals into major orchestras who may not see the IDE issue as all that important. (laughs) And I'm curious if you've thought about that or have kind of dealt with some of the, um, the ways that those two things interact with each other. Yeah. And, and honestly, that's, it's a, it's a struggle, I think, because I don't necessarily know that it's always the orchestra's issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think on some level it has to be the orchestra's issue um, and not from like, you know, Hey, this is great to have, you know, um, diverse voices and diverse ideas in this space. It's more like, it's great because this reflects the people that you're trying to get to come. This reflects your audience, Yes, you know, and you know, like, Hey, if you want people to feel like this is a space where I can spend my money, you need to make it a space where they can spend their money, you know? (laughs) And so like, you know, I think that's, it's an uphill battle, definitely trying to, trying to influence those spaces and say, Hey, like, this isn't really just like a, you know, a, a kumbaya issue, you know, this is actually an issue of like dollars and cents that matters to you. It yep. matters for the longevity of music. And, you know, for this generation that is being bred to consume short form content, right? Things we have, you know, Instagram stories and we've got, you know, YouTube shorts and TikTok. Mm-hmm. And they're so influential. There's so much content going on there. And if we are still trying to, you know, really push this canon of, hey, this is so great. This has been happening for hundreds of years. Yet someone's life is like, I don't know things that happened yesterday. Everything is today. Like, you know, we also have to realize that like by changing these spaces, we're also kind of adapting to the times. Like we're saying, hey, these times are changing. So are we like, here's our repertoire. Here's where we can actually, uh, in a sense, commodify off of just like being good people. Like, you know, Hey, I can be, you know, a good person and have a great space and also like make money. And these things can all work together. And and I don't think they have to be exclusive. Um, You know, not that I feel like money is a driving factor for me, but you know, it has to be at some point, like we, you know, we have families and they have families and they have investments and, and like, I get it. So I think to kind of get back to that point, just a little bit, I think, having having those organizations is so important um for definitely helping with at least that that microsystem level yeah. of of influence um and then you know i think it will take you know conversations like the one we're having now and and many more conversations in the future for like why this is important for larger organizations that don't see that it's important um because it's not about diversity you know it's about longevity it's about reflecting your clientele um so anyway those are those are my thoughts <laughs> yeah no that, yeah that's that that's tremendous and it it, it all it, it seems to boil down to that this is uh constantly a uh it, it is constantly an uh evolving work in progress 
that is never going to end. <laughs> and if you realize that, then okay, maybe we can. It's like maybe we can we can get somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? I know it does. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how that that's you. That's how that goes. <laughs> The 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 one thing I, I that I did occur to me though I was again one other thought was just about how you know particularly if we're again this is focusing on the orchestra side but like if we know full pretty well that that orchestras have like major orchestras I'll say the kind of the the ones that are full time I think they're um, the people who are playing in them has it's kind of lingered like in the two percent range that has been African American. Mm-hmm. Um, since the seventies, <laughs> like it's not gone, it's, it's somehow not gone up. Um, but it also has not gone up. Like <laughs> let's address what's really, so, um, and I know I think about the people who are in those spaces who are like asked, like if there's anything that even like you say half of the word diversity divert. And then it's like, Oh, I, I, I guess I'm going to have to be the person who has to be the diversity in this situation. And it's like all the stress you put on that musician to have to represent. It's just, it just. Yeah. Yeah. Cycling. It is. And, and it really kind of hits at the idea of, you know, tokenism, like, you know, right. you can't have just one in the space because then it feels far too representative. And I think, you know, if, you know, we have like this, you know, 20, 60, 20 principle, you know, where 20 is always one side, 20 is never, and 60 is kind of flexible, yeah. you know, we know we probably need, you know, more than one because that person, you know, what if they happen to be on like, you know, the side of 20, that's like, yeah, no matter what happens, I'm going to be in there right. or the other side, like what, no matter what you do, like it's never going to happen for me yeah. or I'm never going to be willing to put in the work. And that all of a sudden becomes reflective of, you know, 100% of the population in that space or even 50% of the population in that space and and that starts to be like well well maybe you know maybe this isn't an issue maybe it's just you know um so yeah you're 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 spot on like when there's one person or very two percent of the people in that space it it puts a lot of pressure not only on that person but i think also on the larger field um yep. you know it's harder to question a lone entity because you're so happy to see this lone entity and you want to promote that entity and be like, yes, we're so glad you're in that space. Um, And then it feels like, well, if I'm overly critical, then I'm actually cutting down like the entire existence of that space there. Um, So like, for example, like say someone, you know, really thinks that, you know, the ideas that I'm promoting are just total rubbish. There's a lot of pressure for them not to say that, you know, as a as a scholar of color, like people want to see me in the space. They're like, well, I'll just kind of say, all right, they're very interesting <laughs> ideas. You might think you're a bit nuts, right? You know, and like, yeah, yeah. you know, and and you know, we need enough so that you know people can call me nuts and not feel like they're being like they're cutting down an entire, you know, race of scholars. Right. Yes. Um, you know, and that that's also a piece of it. Like we want enough people there for there to be variety for people to have, you know, tastes and flavors and be like, all right, cool. I kind of like this. Don't really like that. And yeah. then not to say something more than just, I don't like this or I don't like that. Up next is percussion educator, performer, clinician, and leader of the PAS Diversity Alliance, Elizabeth De La Mater. She talks about the panel she is hosting called Percussion is for Every Body, 
occurring on Friday at 1 p.m. in room 204 in the convention center. She also talks about some of the other PAS Diversity Alliance items going on at PASIC this year, including the work of the point person for the Racial Diversity Subcommittee of the Alliance and Pete's former grad school colleague, Dr. Sean Daniels. Here's Elizabeth talking about her panel and all things Diversity Alliance. So Elizabeth, tell me about the panel that you are moderating uh, and when it is. I am moderating a panel for the Diversity Alliance at uh, PASIC for the Percussive Arts Society International Convention um, next week. So on Friday at 1 p.m., the Diversity Alliance panel will be the second in a series of every percussion is for everybody. And this year's series version, or I guess episode, is disabled percussionists. We're going to have four panelists who are physically disabled. Uh, They are of different ages. They are specialists in different types of instruments. Their careers are uh, focused in different ways. And uh, they're all going to tell us about uh, their lives and their careers. Um, and we've, we're going to cover a whole um, huge range of topics. So I'm really looking forward to it. Awesome. Now, who are the other panelists? Uh, the panelists are Andrew Bainbridge, uh, Darren Williams Jr., Jen Martinez Bree, and David Siegel. How are either they or you all identifying? disabled percussionists? You know, there are many people who are disabled in ways that are not visible. There is a lot of invisible disability, and that's actually a huge conversation. Um, I think especially right now in the last couple of years, um, because there are many ways that society would prefer to not see disability. Right. Um, sometimes, uh, People have people. It's it's also easier for those of us who are disabled to keep our disabilities private. Um, but some folks don't have that luxury, and um, so there certainly is a huge range of disabilities. And this year, um, we're focusing on folks who are physically disabled, who are um, they do not have the choice. Um, or as some would say, the luxury of uh, keeping that hidden. And um, these folks have still been able to play percussion. Um, So they're disabled uh, for different reasons, um, whether acquired or genetically. Um, And you'll see that some folks have had to make uh, instrument adaptations or mallet adaptations. That's one of the things we're going to talk about. Um, And I think that's something that uh, made the panel especially um, interesting to the uh, folks m- judging the applications at PASIC. That was something that was I was asked about pretty early on. Um, so we're actually trying to also arrange for other sessions where some exhibitors and industry folks can come talk to the panelists um, to, about their specific adaptations. So it turns out that a lot of people all over the world um, 
are making their own adjustments. I mean, we all do that, right? We all have preferences of how we want a cymbal stand set up or how we want a, a pedal, how tight we want a pedal. And um, it turns out that a lot of people are making things that will allow them to play um, or altering their mallets in some way or making their own mallets. And uh, so we'll, we'll hear how these panelists do it. And um, we'll also hear how they were helped or not when they were kids um, and how their careers are affected or not, how their music, how their art is. That's a, a big thing in the disability arts community is artistic identity. Um, whether people, some people have, have a, it's a big discussion. I mean, and some of us um, who are disabled feel like it's a, always part of our art and some of us feel like it's sometimes or never. And so I, I identify as disabled, but I'm, um, mine's acquired. I have a physical disability from having migraines and now long COVID. Um, but that's just, you know, that's very different. And so maybe at a future panel, we'll do something like that or a chronic illness. I don't think you asked me about that, but <laughs> no, that's, but I mean, that's, that is something I want to, I do want to get to with you because yeah, I, I hadn't put together the visually, well, no, you said, um, hidden, right. Hidden versus, um, not hidden or, uh, visual versus invisible. There's actually, uh, it's a, it's a, literally a big topic and you can, it's like a Twitter hashtag even. Mm -hmm. It's a, yeah. I'm, because also it's part of activism. Some people believe um, that if we, if people are more obvious uh, or if we are more, if those of us with disabilities are more open and uh, visible about it, then the world will look around and go, Oh, Whoa, it, you know, there are, there are a lot of people around here and, and we have to um, kind of get our act together. And because of course, as you know, many buildings like in this country don't aren't following ADA rules. And right. that's just a, a one example, but sure. I'm skipping topics again. You're the interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> and some of that is due to some of the, the building specific inch, uh, which you kind of, you had alluded to is a lot of it's due to just age of building. Yes. yes. These are all new, newer adaptations and just buildings are not up to date in that kind of code as well as other right. related codes. Right. And then if the, I don't know um, about, well, I guess I kind of know about your, uh, you're in a fancy building. We're in a new building. Yeah. Right. Most most folks don't get, and you weren't for a very long time. You weren't for a very long time, <laughs> too, yes. And so, uh, yeah, in, in the University of Wisconsin system, it's very, very difficult um, to get any, you know, changes to a building. And, and so if you are in a wheelchair or um, on crutches, I was on crutches for a year, um, a lot of times to get into a, a building, um, the door that has is automatic uh, might be the farthest from the parking lot, right? Sure. Uh, and that's 
maybe the what they had money to do. Right. And um, these things, I don't know. They get there are so many different layers of why this hasn't been fixed yet. But um, luckily, that's not uh, my area, at least yet. But um, that that is part of the idea is that if we show how many those, how many people in the world need these accessibility measures, then maybe we can get some folks to change. Yeah. Um, But we're going to talk about drums and equipment, and I've actually heard from some exhibitors and manufacturers. Some folks are, they they, they literally do not know and would love to know um, what they can do. And uh, so maybe we can give them some ideas. Yeah. What stands to me, at least with some of the the challenge here is that it's one thing. Okay. So if we think about it from a wheelchair perspective, uh, that there's, there's a little bit of a standard there, at least in terms of like height and width, not, I'm not saying that it's, it's so there's, so when there's, when you're building um, like a ramp or you're widening a doorway, we, we tend to have like some idea of, of what's enough of a distance, I, th- I think, to create something that, that works, um, possibly. The, there, are so, there are supposedly, there are uh, standards that buildings are supposed to follow. And right. I'm assuming that buildings don't. Right, right. There are codes. Yeah. <laughs> there, yeah. So, so, so where I was going, I agree. Yes. Um, ideal versus actual right, is right. a real, is a, is an enormous challenge. Um, I was thinking what I, where I was going with this was you're, you've alluded to the fact that some of the people on the panel and others in this who are, who are, who are trying to be artists, you yeah. know, effectively basically um, are, are having to create their own stuff. Uh-huh to make it happen. Yeah. And I was, and my, my guess was, was wondering how from the um, manufacturer's perspective, how viable is it for them to, to create something that's, that's a, a kind of on a mass scale. Like that, yeah. that's where I was going. Right. Well, that's, that's the big question. And I yeah. think that uh, from talking to some of the, my panelists, they have some really good ideas and um, two of the panelists are, drummers who gig a lot all the time yeah. and uh, they'll explain how they've made that work and um, what gear they use and what systems they've ended up, ended up putting together. Yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes it really, I think it will just be a matter of just maybe extending ranges of um, adjustment perhaps. I shouldn't even be speaking about this on other people's behalf, but sure. that's an example. Yeah. Uh, and then maybe there will be some other uh, options that currently do not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I know that one of the other panelists right now is going to tell us about a prototype that she and Piper Vibes are developing. Um, so some things, yes, I mean, that's, part of it right is that sometimes the adaptations are so personal the manufacturers say there's no way i can afford to make this i can't change all my specs in my factory mm-hmm. um just to make two a year yeah uh, I, I can't afford that um 
but maybe there's some middle ground and maybe now that machining and technology allows for different things, mm-hmm. um, who knows? So that's part of a part of the conversation. Yeah. It, it also seems like one, another part would be if you are a gigging percussionist and you, and you have to, and you think about the fact that a lot of what we do is moving instruments is yeah. is all that stuff and you you just like in my head i went through okay what would be all of the questions that one of your panelists would have to have answered uh-huh. to even consider accepting a gig yep and just like way more than anything i would i could just say yes and i could figure it out someone else could is just going to be like all right i like i have this has to be there this like or i you know can't it's do it funny. It's pretty cool. You, you'll, I think that a lot of folks will get, learn a lot and get some pretty great tips as well, um, because you have to be smart if you have physical challenges or, for example, if you have pain, right? Yeah. You, um, you've learned some stuff over the years. I mean, we all have if we're we've been playing for thirty years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the there are some tips. Uh, that I've already learned from talking to uh, one of the panelists that, that I'm going to start using on, on my schleps. And um, that's the thing we can, we can learn from people who've, who've put in time and brain power um, yeah. and money. Right. Right. So uh, I'm not gonna, I actually can't speak for it. I don't know everything that you know, but yeah, come and come and listen to some cool things that they've, that they do. Yeah. No, that yeah, that's gonna be that's gonna be great. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, how did it occur that you wanted, or you the diversity committee wanted to cover this particular topic this time? Well, we are uh, trying to do um, these conversations, and we were able to continue or to, well, yeah, continue conversations through. Um, virtual means during the pandemic and um, we were doing able to do some instrument focused things um, or some uh, industry focused things with uh, PAS and um, last year sometimes there are certain things that work so well live where people can ask questions and last year's PASIC panel was um it was virtual, but there were so many questions in the chat. Yeah. Um, I wanted to do one of the things that would, that would get a lot of questions. I wanted to do that live. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, you know, in my head, um, I and the Diversity Alliance, we have a whole bunch of different um, populations and, and uh, topics that we want to end up presenting. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one I chose because I thought this would be excellent live. Now it's a bigger burden to ask some of these people to travel. Sure. Uh, so that was, that was a big ask. And, um, but I felt that we all felt it was worth it. And the panelists felt it was worth it. And, um, it's, it's, uh, pretty, pretty great. It's pretty exciting. That they're having to travel, with restrictions. Right. I mean, right. Travel's hard enough. Yeah. Travel's and then, hard enough. 
<laughs> right. So the two of the two of the people at least are traveling with companions. Things are so much easier that way. Um, with the uh, pandemic continuing, um, I was worried, but with vaccinations um, being required, that's made everything a lot more comfortable. And so I had thought that some panelists would drop out, but everybody is still coming. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a uh, it's a great thing. I mean, the Indiana Convention Center. I don't know if if they've really been advertising it, but they they did um, I think millions of dollars of renovations, and they have since the last PASIC there. Since the last PASIC uh, for hygiene for the pandemic. So oh, yeah. the um, doors and um all kinds of things where you like restrooms and things where we used to have to use our hands are now hands-free mm -hmm. and um the uh, hvac um has been greatly improved and um they've changed some things with the uh expo hall um and they're they've got their whole act way down and so like i'm feeling more comfortable about going into that space now mm -hmm. uh, and uh indian general has been very very good i that the city works well together like the city with all of the museums and all of the arts organizations and so they really made it a priority to be a safe place to go mm -hmm. um so i was really worried but uh i'm feeling very good about about going to see everybody in person next week. Yeah. That's going to be great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you had alluded to this at the beginning about the um, invisible aspect of disability, um, uh -huh. which is, it's one of the, that's actually the thing that I'm, we deal with a lot like it, I'm sure like all across higher ed, but like thinking of Mizzou, because we actually, I, I try to encourage students to like go through the center, um, particularly when, even if it's, even if it's asking for like extra test time or something like that, um, yeah. even, even if it's on a temporary basis, yep. um, because that, makes it easier for me to, I mean, I'm willing to allow that as a faculty member, but it's easier for me to do so if the student has also has kind of gone through and, and realized that this is actually for their benefit to, to go through and, and, and be, um, you know, get the, get the accommodations that they need to be successful. Right. Yeah. And, and just because for so many reasons, um, you can still go all the way through high school even all the way through your undergrad and still not know that you have a learning disability. Yeah. You still somehow not know that you, you are, have are neuroatypical in some manner and that it's not that you're lazy or right. that you're, you know, somehow just simply disorganized. And, um, if you can go be evaluated or go get some assistance, I, I've known other people who, um, their lives have just been changed in so many ways. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a lot of folks uh, still struggle with assistance, but it's a, it's a big difference from, say, um, people, my parents' generation who didn't have any help. And right. um, it, 
I can't recommend it enough. I think everybody should learn, should learn how they learn and, you know, yeah, get, get, uh, if you, I think that's kind of what grad grad school is anyway, if not undergrad. Um, but if we all could become better versed on what strengths we have in learning and then learn how to assist that, um, that would be helpful. So yeah, encouraging your students to go, um, either for formal testing or just, uh, some assistance. That's, that's so great. There's the resources out there are amazing. Um, and the way people are taught, especially people who went through no child left behind. Yeah. um, (laughs) Some of those folks never had to take certain kinds of lecture courses and then they get to college Right. Oh boy, they're in trouble. Yeah. So, um, yes, that is, uh, that is a whole nother panel we'd love to do, Mm -hmm. um, or four. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. The next series. Yeah. Panels. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I hadn't even thought about how, if you haven't had, if you've been able to not to kind of, progress through um and then you have to sit in lecture courses and like that's just got to be the worst i mean or just really really challenging one of the things that that's beneficial at least and it's kind of like a been a recommendation and i don't know if, if you've noticed this as well is that if we are able to record lectures um that I know that there are students who will watch and rewatch, like, cause like some, one of the things that, that frequently someone will ask for is note taker assistance. And one way to kind of take, I don't want to say take care of that, but one way that that can be accommodated without that is if, if it's recorded and then they can just go and play it until they, and rewind and go back until they get it, <laughs> you know, and it's oh. on their time. Boy, that's been so great. I mean, and, and having that in classrooms now, um, oh man, some of this technology that we, that schools were forced to get over the last couple of years has been really great for accessibility. Yeah. As the plan with the, with the panel, this, uh, that's coming up to just kind of have the, the guest panelists kind of just describe like what they deal with. I like kind of like part of their introduction is they're going to share their, the disability that they have that interferes with their playing or that has um, changed their playing experience from those who are not disabled. Mm -hmm. And um, they'll describe what their current careers are. And then we'll talk about a whole bunch of things, including, um, education and uh who may have assisted so because some people had some um amazing educators some people had to had some aha moments on their own um Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about economics um economic issues uh we're going to talk about artistic identity we're going to talk about gear um we're going to talk about um uh just uh, at least three more things we hope before we make sure we have time for questions. Mm-hmm. 
we will also then have instruments in our diversity room. So the oh, diversity- is it okay? Is that a new thing? That's a new thing, right? A diversity room thing. It's awesome. Super pumped that we are going to have a room in the West End, just one of those small cabinet rooms yeah, yeah. Um, near the escalators. And we're going to have our resources up there, the resources that our subcommittees have been putting together over the last couple of years. So we'll have things posted, um, including some of our, uh, some of the learning guides and um, some of the anti-racism educational resources. And on Friday, we will have instruments in the room. Mm. Um, Joshua Simons has been really great in acquiring uh, vibes and drum set for us. And so the, I'm not sure yet if we're going to have a specific time or if actually I think we're going to have them for the whole day, but mm-hmm. people can make um, appointments even to go see, um, talk about the instruments with the panelists. Um, I think that uh, Darren and David play the drum set the most and they want to talk um, together and play together uh, to, to show each other and uh, anybody who wants to watch um, what they do. Mm-hmm. We're all going to have also a meet and greet at our booth because we will have a booth in the Expo Hall. Oh, Eleven is the diversity booth. Um, we're usually near some of the loud drums and... Uh, so that'll be at three o'clock on Friday. So most of our stuff is on Friday, and um, otherwise, our we'll, folks will be walking around. And um, if folks want to know how to get a hold of myself or any of the panelists, they can go to the booth and uh, figure out how to reach me, and we'll work it out from there. Um, but yeah, it's um, all the panelists are super excited to be able to talk about this. They say that. You know, they every time they play, they get a lot of questions. Yeah. Unless they're just sitting in a corner at a, you know, at a wedding gig. Sure. Uh, but if they play on a big stage, then so this is a chance to really let folks ask ask away, um, especially educators. I'm really proud of the Diversity Alliance's uh, initiatives. Also, this this year the um, different subcommittees um, and or members um, kind of sponsored or worked with other committees at PAS mm-hmm. to get some amazing sessions going. So I wanted to highlight a couple of others. Yeah. Um, one of our point people, Dr. Sean Daniels, um, is a timpanist for the Color of Music Festival Orchestra. Yeah. It's an all-African-American orchestra and his section is playing a showcase concert on nine o'clock on Friday. It's the first time at a PASIC that an all African-American section is going to play um, orchestral section. And they've been working on this. Uh, Sean's been working on trying to get, make this happen for a while. Um, So this is super, super cool. Um, Another thing that happened was our professional opportunities subcommittee uh, got together and helped recap, which is a quartet of um, women of color, young women of color 
in on the East Coast. They were just profiled by NPR, by the oh, way. Oh yeah, yeah. So they they did a virtual session. Okay. Um, some of our folks are on a panel from the University Pedagogy Committee. Adam Groh is a Diversity Alliance member and an awesome teacher and educator who, of course, has been doing some wonderful uh, programming initiatives and a compose, composition consortium. And this year, the Pedagogy Committee put together a panel about um, diversity curriculum, mm. diversity in curriculum. So yeah. that is going to be incredible. They're also doing that's Thursday at four, but then they're doing breakout sessions at five, which is mm. not usually done. So we're doing, we're being super academically smart here at PASIC this year. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I mean, just some really great things um, to, as well as, of course, you know, fabulous performers, but some really wonderful ways to become more of an inclusive um, member of the community, an inclusive educator um, and appreciator. So it's it's uh, going to be a great session or rather convention. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for letting me. Uh, there are more sessions, but those are going to be amazing. Oh, and Oliver Molinas, the um, Northwestern State, they're uh, new music literature percussion ensemble. Yeah. All new pieces. I mean, I guess that's what the session is, right? But right. Um, some amazing commissions, new young composers, giving people a chance. It's super cool. We are playing and I'm getting emotional. We're playing the music of more people. We are playing music with more people. We are teaching more people than we did before. And that's how it should be. Yep. Next up is University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, percussion professor Juan Alamo. Juan will be presenting a clinic on developing improvisation and mallet playing, specific to marimba playing, on Friday at 3 p.m. in room 109 in the convention center. Juan appears here talking about how he came to develop this topic and the implications for many percussion performers in all stages of their careers. So Juan, tell me what you are presenting at PASIC this year and when you are presenting it at PASIC this year. So I'm presenting uh, Friday the 12th. Both, yeah. The 12th. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you can tell that it's been a long day. <laughs> 12 at <laughs> sure. 3 o'clock, room 109. I don't remember that. Uh, and then kind of the topic is this idea of um, sharing strategies for integrating theory, um, technique, musicianship. That's a little bit of improvisation into mala studies. And marimba is going to be kind of the main instrument, but the, the, the information that I'll be sharing could be transferred to any uh, mallet keyboard instrument. So that's kind of the general overview. Uh, maybe a little bit more specific. Um, you know, basically the idea is to, is, is how to uh, use like core voicings to practice permutations instead of using open fifth or octaves or thirds, which is what we typically do. And it's fine. It's great that we, we all need to do that. 
But if we have to play a tune, you know, that's not going to be enough to be able to play the tune, uh, whether you're trying to make an accompaniment or try to play a solo. So the idea is just to use the simple voicings and then kind of use that. Uh, and then um, you can practice your typical permutations, you know, double laterals, double verticals, you know, the different movements that we use on, on, on a keyboard instrument. But then also uh, uh, how, you know, I will be kind of demonstrating how can you use either rhythms from, from the percussion repertoire, I mean percussion from the marimba repertoire uh, with those voicings. So you could do that when you're comping for someone in a given tune, or how can you use rhythms that you use on a drum set or any other, you know, hand drumming instrument, apply, it, apply that to the marimba with these voicings, and then you can create some cool accompaniments. So that's kind of the, the, the part of what I'll be talking about. And then maybe some stuff as to how could how could you do some simple uh, solo marimba arrangements using those voicings and and again the idea is sort of blending the traditional marimba repertoire with with the theory and harmony that you learn in, in your theory classes. So it's not it's not a jazz approach to it though there will be some of it, but it's primarily catered towards classical marimba players who sometimes might be a little bit uh, reluctant to either improvise or to pick a tune and try to create a basic accompaniment because they feel like, oof, if, if it's not written on the page, I don't know what to do. In, in, and in reality, we know what to do. We just haven't taken the time to kind of develop those skills. The information is there. It's just a matter of integrating it and connecting it. And that's kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts of the, of the presentation. What spurred you on to put these aspects together for this presentation? What was, how did that tend to happen on your so, end? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I always joke with my students and friends that I should subtitle that Confessions of a Marimba Player <laughs> because yeah. uh, a lot of it was motivated by my personal experience going all the way back to when I was finished my undergraduate studies. I started doing recitals around uh, the island. I'm from Puerto Rico. So, mm-hmm. so I did see the, I, I allowed, can see the flag behind you. So I, I yeah, did. I just can see the did, flag yeah. in the back. So I, I started to do recitals right before I moved to the States and I would go to different towns. And, you know, I will play all this kind of uh, uh, standard marimba repertoire, but I, I, but I also wanted to play some popular tunes so people could connect to it and uh, try to blend that. So I took the, I took the instrument home and then... Um, it so happened that one day one of my aunts comes back and say, oh, it's my daughter's birthday. Can you play happy birthday for her? And I said, well, if you give me the music, I might be able to, or if you give me a couple of days, but not on the spot. But it then, it, it, so, so it done on me, wait a minute, I'm playing all this music and I have all these chops, but I cannot do something that my grandfather, by the way, who didn't know any theory, harmony or anything, could pick a guitar and say, just in what key you want it. Right. <laughs> and play it. And, and I was like, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. I should be able to do this because I have the tools. I just haven't taken the time to integrate that information and to build the skills. So that was the first thing. Then the second thing is when I when I moved to North Texas, um, I was able to get into the jazz uh, department. And while I was doing my classical studies, I was also pursuing uh, also some classes of the jazz uh, area. So I started to kind of in, integrate, for lack of a better term, since that's the title of the, of the class, that information. And then, uh, um, you know, opportunities started to arrive uh, in which I would get called to play at a restaurant or to play at a private 
uh, uh, event or something. And of course, in those situations, you cannot go there and play marimba spiritual or, uh, or, or variations of lost love, not because they're not great pieces. It's just that's not what the music that people want to hear. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, and uh, I have to be able to play tunes that people can recognize. And I have to be able to play a lot of tunes. So I don't have the time to kind of memorize them. I have to build a system that I could take a lead sheet and then pretty much improvise or make up an accompaniment that I can support a singer or, or like a simple um, solo marimba arrangement. So that's kind of the, 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 the nature of why I, I am doing this. And then bottom line, I think it's, it's an important way to learn, to, to build your kind of your personality and identity with the instrument. I think ultimately the goal of every musician is to kind of share what you have to say artistically. And I think being able to use music as a, you know, as a platform that you could share your thoughts, emotions, and ideas. What, a, what better way than just using the theory and the technique that you have learned, but in a spontaneous, creative way. Um, not to say, again, I don't want to come across as, uh, as, as someone that don't believe that uh, interpreting music or learning music is not important quite the opposite. I just think there is more to it that we can do with the information that we have learned through the years. And so that's kind of uh, where I'm coming from, if that makes any sort of sense. Uh, completely. And you get kind of focusing on your presentation. You know, Maybe you're, are you building kind of a system, you've created some type of systematic approach to start cre- start allowing people to really flourish in this type of way. Yeah, I mean, in essence, what I'll be presenting is our episodes from an upcoming book that I'm writing and also exercises and handouts that I've been writing for years and I use here with my students. Uh, one thing about here at Chapel Hill is that the vast majority of my students are double majors. A, a good percentage of them are going to pursue other careers, whether it's engineering or music business. And I always joke with them and say, hey, pretty soon you're not going to have the time or the need to practice five hours a day, but you're going to have the money to have a marimba in your living room, but you won't have the time to practice. It would be great if you have the skills that you could take a tune when you invite your friends or your family over and you could just, you know, go to the instrument and play that. Uh, so that's kind of the the other objective of this is just um, help people to build skills that could you know expand your, your your musical endeavors if you will but also give you some practical tools that you could use to create music on any situation uh, that you might encounter down the road and then lastly those of us who like to do recitals then you can you can expand your repertoire and then play something that people who are not familiar with our repertoire can connect to because I feel like it's always great, especially when I travel abroad and I'm playing in festivals that are not catered towards precautionists. I think it's important to be able to play something that people can connect to. Uh, and then we obviously, I, I make sure that I also play something that is standard that represents our tradition, and our music, because I think I, I, I value their music and it's important. But I couple that with other things so can people, you know, assimilate, understand, and, and, and also, you know, uh, sit there for an hour and not feel like we're punishing them with music that is demanding both uh, to the ear and to us as as interpreters. So that's kind of the, the background or the agenda, if you will, behind my presentation and, 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 and my ideas. Uh, that's great. It's, it's odd because it's, 
it's a skill that I, I don't know if you have a piano background, but it's a skill that, that I had a teacher um, early on develop for piano for me. And I could very easily just pull up um, chords and just noodle and be fine. And I've never thought about, I've never actually like really thought about doing it for marimba. And it's like, yeah. I probably could, <laughs> you know, Oh, I mean, I mean, I'm sure you could. I mean, I, like I said, the, 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 the irony of all of this is that we have all that information, but we tend to co- to uh, compartmentalize that information. Like we learn the theory stuff and we leave that in the theory. Yeah. Very, very few people take the initiative or, or whatever word you want to use to take that to the practice room and say, oh, I'm learning about uh, Napolitan six. You mm-hmm. know, how does that sound and how does that work? I'm learning about perfect cadences. So let me play down on the, on the instrument. Oh, measure voicings, you know, so that when you see that on a, on a lead sheet, that, okay, I'm ready to go. Uh, and then, you know, okay, I'm, I'm practicing my permutation. So again, instead of playing open fifth, which is fine, right. then let me now just use major voicings and learn how to play them on the instrument. So next time that I'm asked to play a tune, then I can do that because I have that, that information in my hands. Yeah. It's interesting because you're it sounds like you're combining a little bit of of what would be standard like vibraphone jazz ideas as well. Yeah, I mean, there's some of that, but but I'm trying purposely first because I I, I do study jazz vibes. But but I see myself primarily as a marimba player. And I feel this is just my opinion mm-hmm. that the marimba and the biographer are two, two totally different instruments. Damn. Like I want, when, when, when I, when I, when I stand behind the biographer, it's like, okay, give me a minute. I gotta, I have to change my marimba mentality right. yeah. to get used to the range, to get used to the tone of the instrument, to the pedaling yeah. and kind of the language of the instrument. Cause I feel like if I were to play the same tunes and this, this would be one of the things that I would talk in the class. Mm-hmm. is if I were to play that in a quote-unquote traditional jazz setting, I would probably be using different voicings and rhythms or right. more typical of a jazz vibraphone um, uh, tradition. Yeah. But the approach of, of my approach of my, my, my talk at PASIC is how we use the language of, of, the, of the marimba, the typical permutations that you will encounter in, in, in a standard marimba repertoire and the voicings that we use. Because of the nature of the instrument, we tend to use voices in a different way. But naturally, there will be some connection at some point, particularly when you start talking about improvisation, there will be some, you know, similarities between the two, uh, meaning the biographer and the, and, the, and, the, and the marimba. I will be making emphasis in the sense that in the in the in the fact that the clinic is not uh, is not is not intended for jazz musicians, but rather for classical marimba players who often are reluctant about the idea of improvising or simply creating uh, an, a, an accompaniment because if we don't see it written on the page, we don't feel like, 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 like we know what to do when in reality it's not the case. It's just we haven't developed the skills to connect uh, that information, as I said before. Yeah. Or the confidence to want to try yeah. it. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's the other thing, just uh, sort of overcoming that initial fear of, well, uh, what if I play a wrong note? That's okay, you know, keep going. About the many uh, uh, benefits of doing this is, I think it helps you to build the confidence 
musically and, and mentally speaking to understand that 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 row notes are part of, of of what performing is all about, right? We want to minimize them, but by learning how how uh, um, theory and harmony works, that enables you to recover in a situation in which you might play a row note or you might have a memory slip. And it's like, okay, but I can recover because I know the key in which I play. Because I think the other problem that I often encounter, and you, you might have a different experience, is sometimes I have a student and they will come to my office and I will ask, in what key are we? And they look at me like, what? <laughs> yeah, in what key are, is this piece? And, and to what other keys does, does the piece modulate? And right. how, how did that happen? Yeah. So learning, uh, taking, using a, a harmonic approach to playing the instrument and learning the instrument will enable you to expand the way you hear music and the way you learn a piece, your phrasing will be a lot stronger because you have that harmonic understanding to re- kind of reinforce your, your musical ideas. And then it will give you the confidence to, to finally overcome the fear of what if I play in a wrong note or what note should I play? Uh, which is which is kind of the initial reaction that all of us, you know, experience early on. It's like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, that's wonderful. It, you, you're making me think about how one of the things that uh, I'm at Mizzou, University of Missouri, and one of the our theory professor is fantastic. And one of the things he does make the students do because I teach a section of oral skills mm-hmm. is. Um, they have to find examples of what we're talking about in their private music. And it's one of those things that I don't think I ever, I was like, man, I wish somebody made me do that so early on just to develop the skills so that they know that this isn't stuff that's just in a vacuum or in a book. Yeah. Some, 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 some kind of a punishment that we have to go through. Punishment. That's well, that's how I felt. I felt like I was, being punished and i was looking at the clock like i could be practicing right now you know why do i have to be sitting here for 50 minutes or an hour talking about i don't know major triads or 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 cadences or intervals or whatever you know i don't need that i just i just need to read the music and the rhythms and memorize them and work on my phrasing but i want to work you know i want to be playing music and memorizing big mistake i wish somebody would have stopped me and 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 introduce or present uh theory from a different angle yeah. Uh, from a more practical, hands-on approach, because I think that will change entirely the way we do things and the way we think about the instrument. Yeah. And, and, and in a way, that's, that's also part of what I'm proposing. It's like, hey, you can look at theory in a totally different way. When you practice your scales, it's great to learn how to, to develop the physical mobility to play them and to use the proper technique. That's, that's, that's a foundation, and you must build those skills. But there's another level, and that is... How can you create music with those notes? You know, how can you combine those notes? Which note is 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 is, is more dissonant than other or more consonant? How I combine them? That that, that and those things are very simple skills that if you start working on them over time, you develop and it's like okay, I can improvise in a very simple way and and and, and it doesn't have to be attached to uh, to any genre because we tend to think about improvisation as jazz and it's right. not the case i mean there's a ton of, of improvisation even in classical music oh yeah it's just we have label we typically tend to label and and connect to well jazz that's improvisation right. and and I, 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 that's not my thing that's not what i really want to do yeah yeah hopefully 
that's one of those, I think, I, I don't know if, it, if you had this encounter when, you know, you, you, when you're doing maybe like music history or something and you find out that like list, like what's written as a, um, you know, what's written as a cadenza was like, he may have played that once. Like that was not, he didn't, he didn't, that wasn't codified or anything. He made yeah. it all up very, when he, when he would get to those por- portions of songs. Yeah, I mean, improvisation was, I mean, we, I always tell that the greatest improviser were Bach, Mozart, mm-hmm. you know, Beethoven. Because, yeah. uh, you, you know, I mean, all respect to all these great class, uh, jazz musicians. I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, diminish their greatness. They're amazing yeah. musicians. But, uh, I mean, it's not the same improvising on a 12-bar blues or, or a 32-bar form that improvising an entire set of variations right. on an A-bar theme or something, yeah. which takes a total different, you know, uh, set of skills. Right. Uh, and those people would do that. Or, or yeah. in, the, in the middle of a, of a, of a, of a, of a concerto, like, like you said, just improvise a cadenza. Yeah. Uh, that's a total different uh, you know, conversation about improvisation, but everything is connected. We're still talking about the same 12 notes, right? which is, which is, which is an interesting uh, um, thing about this. Everything boils down to just 12 notes that we can make so much music with. Yeah, totally agree. And it's really invigorating if you see someone actually improvise um, a cadenza or, or at least like create their own. Um, Cause I, one of our, awesome cello our cello uh professor here she was playing i can't remember who i i'm just doing a, a well-known cello concerto but she the first uh at least the first movement she she improvised her own cadenza at the end and it was awesome like yeah, it was yeah. so good yeah <laughs> oh yeah i mean it's it's Especially when you have taken the time to kind of understand what improvisation uh, or, or kind of the, the, the core of what improvisation is meant to be. Because yeah. sometimes we get sidetracked by the idea that, oh, you got to learn patterns and memorize scales. And that's not really what it is. Uh, at the end, the basic idea of developing a theme, call and response, you know, those very simple, it's a conversation. That's what it is. And if you have a logical uh, progression from 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 something simple that develops, that expands, that results, and then you know you summarize it back to you know a conclusion. Um, sure, in the mix of that, you use scales patterns, but that's not what it is. Um, and sometimes we get confused. I, I, I'm guilty of charge of 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 thinking too much in the theoretical in the in the theoretical and the you know kind of the gymnastics things of of, of improvising. I mean, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a journey that is a lifetime journey. So we are at least I, I will be I will classify myself within the group of those still learning. Next up is Northwestern State University in Louisiana, percussion professor Oliver Molina. Oliver's percussion ensemble was picked to present the new music percussion ensemble literature session to be presented in a 90-minute concert on Friday at 4 p.m. in the Wabash Ballroom. Here, Oliver not only discusses the works of a lot of previous guests who are composers who have been on this podcast, but also discusses the challenges of putting together a diverse group of composers for this concert while also tending to his job responsibilities. Here's Oliver talking about it all. 
So Oliver, tell me about what you and your group will be presenting and when they'll be presenting it at PASIC this year. Sure. Um, so the Northwestern State University Percussion Ensemble is presenting the New Literature Showcase Concert. And it is on November 12th, that Friday at 4 p.m. And I believe in the Wabash Ballroom. So the big ballroom downstairs, a little bit around the corner from the um, exhibit hall. Um, but what this session is, is um, it's a, actually it's a 90 minute session. Um, and so it's a lot of music and I'll talk a bit more about that in detail later on. Um, but it's, we select pieces that were um, published or composed within the last five years. Um, and we highlight those pieces for percussion ensemble. Um, we were actually selected to do this in 2020 but then, as we all know, um, COVID didn't make made sure that PASIC was not in person. I'm glad we are doing it this year. And so um, I'm not sure. I think I think every piece is still within the five years of 2021. But I think I, when we were researching pieces, I looked at pieces from 2015 up to 2021. So I guess like five and a half years uh, for that window. And so it's it's been quite the semester getting ready uh, for all of this. And I'm going to be glad at 5.30, well, no, maybe like 6.30 after the students put all the instruments away um, and be glad when it, all of it is over. That that dinner is going to be lovely. <laughs> yes, it's going to be great. It's going to be <laughs> amazing. Remind me again of what the charge of this particular session, because, yeah, it's, it's longer. It's usually a little different. Different programs have done different things with it. Mm-hmm. So what's kind of what was the charge of the of this type, this specific um, program. Yeah, so it's mainly new music within the last five years. Um, they do have some sort of like guidance toward making sure that there's a nice um, collection of difficulty levels. Um, so there'll be there'll be like a middle school percussion instructor there. There'll be a college professor there watching the repertoire. And so something that um, was told to me. Um, and not in a mean way, but to make sure to clarify that this session is not an IPEC concert, not one of the um, big um, like winners of that. Of that. The, the way they select this is not the same process as to do for those where it's like anonymous and people just listen to recordings. Um, this is more so an application, just like any other session, whether you're doing a clinic or a masterclass or whatever, where it's mainly based on the merits of the presenter and what the ensemble has done. So that was kind of nice because I guess the thing that led into this um, performance or this application was in 2019, um, right before I applied for this for the 2020 PASIC is that um, we went up to uh, PASIC and and every, I think for the last six or seven years, they had this concert chamber competition. And I told my students like, hey, let's finally, like there's no football game this weekend um, and let's let's go ahead and uh, I'll, rent a vehicle for us because some of the students um, drove themselves later on because we wanted to get there a little early. I'll rent a vehicle. Let's load up all the equipment and go up there. Um, And we made it a thing that we were actually going to do. Um, And so we did that in 2019. And long story short, I told my students, as long as we don't get last place, we'll be good. And it ended up happening that as they were announcing the different, um, they only announced the top three at the award ceremony. They said the third group, and I was like, oh, I'm sitting next to my students. Like, that's not us. It's like, it's all right. And now it's second place. It was actually a tie for a second. I'm like, oh, that's neither of us. I'm like, that's fine. All right. Then I like, thought, like, oh, at least I don't know the stats yet, but hopefully we didn't get last place. And then the next thing you know, they announced Northwestern State University 
that we won and we freaked out and it was it was like crazy yeah like i i had no idea like we we prepped and i prepped them pretty hard but it, i had no idea that it was going to happen because i saw some of the other groups play that same day and i was like we're going against i remember um the university of texas at austin brought a group and they were playing this really drummy piece and it was just awesome and fast and like just all like fireworks going off not literal fireworks but it was just amazing yeah um and later on i found out is that there were i think i don't know for sure the numbers but there was a quartet and all of them were graduate students four uh, three of them were maybe doctoral students and one was a master's student i was like we beat those guys i'm like we're a bunch of undergrads i'm like oh my gosh like this this is just crazy yeah and so that's why i didn't think we would make it at all but then i guess um, their hard work definitely paid off and they performed the crap out of it. So it was good. Yeah. Uh, anyways, that led into, sorry, I kind of went. In no, the, no, that was a great story. I want to, yeah. Uh, that led into me applying for the session for 2020. Um, and I think that helped them uh, like merit us for um, this session. Um, again, now kind of going back to your first question, it is supposed to be um, just about, is 90 minute session, they recommend 70 to 75 minutes of music which is still a lot of music. Um, and then we ended up doing, uh, it was 17 pieces and then we cut it down to 16, which is still a lot um, because uh, logistically um, I went through, like we've actually done this concert three times already in prep um, and looking at the timings between each piece, um, me being like OCD about everything being perfect Sure. is that our timings is still around, it was like 36 minutes at the first concert for logistics in between pieces. And now we finally got it down to 25. Um, but that happened because we cut a piece as well. And so um, again, a wide range of pieces. Um, we were starting off with a, I guess, more ancient rudimental drumming type thing on rope drums that uh, our other percussion teacher, Ken Green, is all about. And um that was actually written for the old guard um, back in the eighties. And so this is where it gets kind of confusing because uh, the piece isn't published um, yet, but now it will be published this year and it'll be readily available. So that still meets within that five-year window. And then we are actually have four premieres uh, for this concert. I commissioned uh, four composers. One of them, you know, actually I'm trying to think, at least two of them you've had on your podcast before. So I, um, Joe, you already mentioned him already. So I got him to write us a piece and he wrote a cool piece for us um, for uh, pitch percussion and like um, a drum, drummy percussion stuff and some found sounds and whatnot. Andrew Vinay, I believe was on your podcast before too. Um, and she wrote us a mallet quartet. That's actually Joe's piece is great, but I think I like her piece a little bit more. I don't know if you'll listen to this, but um, it, her piece is just great. And I'm hoping to play it someday with Joe and some of our other colleagues, a friend of mine that I met at a new music festival that we have here in Louisiana, um, Tao Lee wrote us a piece for a tri uh, percussion trio and electronics. And then the last piece, it was uh, Francisco Perez, who's over at Lamar, which I, th I think you've had him as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, he wrote us a piece uh, more, uh, I guess on the middle school, early high school side for I think eight players. Yeah. Um, um, it just, really cool piece and just fun as well. And so uh, just trying to find different pieces that would fit this program. Um, and then the other, I guess the last, last thing, which I think was a good uh, application point for when I uh, submitted the application was something that I wanted to do was make sure that I highlighted underrepresented composers. 
Um, so the last um, new literature session that happened in 2019, um, looking at the composer list, and actually this kind of came to my thought because um, Adam Groh, mm. um, uh, he made a post right after PASIC saying um, about the lack of a diversity at PASIC um, when it comes to programming or the presenters or whatnot. Um, and so part of my application was um, we're, we're going to play it like we, we can play this concert, but then also we'll make sure that we represent other underrepresented areas. And so uh, for even the ones I just mentioned, so Joe, um, Dr. Vinay or Andrea, um, Tao Lee is a Chinese composer. And then Francisco is a, a Mexican-American composer and all of that. And then there's a, a bunch of other composers on there out of the 16. Uh, that have hopefully a better sample of what um, actually somebody posted on this on Instagram yesterday is that um, the Diversity Alliance posted, uh, I guess, a collage of the different composers that are on part of our program. And somebody commented on there, this looks like a snapshot of America. And so it was a little bit nice to see um, different people on the program. You were You were kind of answering one of the other questions, which was, it's kind of there's an encouragement to commission because like that's part of since obviously that would be five you know within the the time frame is there did they have they given a limit on that or is it just that if you're going to commission it like let's like maybe one of these is is specified for like you said like a younger ensemble or something like that or are any of those parameters in there or are they just kind of self-imposed in this case more so self-imposed um something that i wanted to do um so i guess i should have mentioned this earlier is that they also want to make sure of the shows a wide range of difficulty levels for the different types of ensembles but then also represent the different types of companies that are out there sure. and so um something that i wanted to do it was hard to balance that like the difficulty levels um the representation of composers, but then also the publishers or uh, different composers who self-publish as well. So that was definitely hard to get a nice mix of all that. Um, but for the four that I commissioned, I wanted for sure because those are all, all four of them are underrepresented compared to other areas. And I wanted to commission them specifically for this. I did ask them for like, I know Francisco's piece. I told him like, hey, maybe write it for an easier ensemble. Um, I told them Dave Hall's um, Archipelagos piece. Mm. Um, kind of think about that um, style, which like that piece is sounds harder than it is, but it's pretty much like an eighth grade level, like junior high level type of piece. But the way he crafts it, it's just it's just really uh, well written. And so he did that for his piece. Um, but there, there isn't necessarily any like you don't have to do any commissions at all. Um, I just wanted to make sure I added some because looking at all the pieces that the publishers do have, it was hard to find a better representation of those types of composers. And I get it in terms of what, what's the kind of the starting point of your focus. And so if your starting point is, I want to, I want to represent, you know, I would show this representation then. Yeah. That I like, I could kind of see you're like, all right, I'm going to take care of that. Here's, here's a way I can take care of that and like actually get us new literature Right. You know, that that we've kind of showcased. Um, so that, that's great because you're doing you said 16 pieces. Yeah. Um, so are you playing all of them fully or are you just are some of them um, highlights or like a segment of. Yeah. So three of them are only excerpts or a segment of it, um, because I think the total length for those three um, each is around like eight or nine minutes. 
And so in order to, again, this is why there's 16 pieces is ordered to make sure um, the difficulty levels, the, com the composers, the uh, underrepresented composers and the publishers kind of have a better, um, I guess, mix of all of that. That's why there are so many. Um, it it would have been cool to do all of the pieces like fully, um, but then those uh, three, especially that are excerpted are just a little too long. And that means there would have been another composer or publisher um, not being able to be played for our concert. Yeah. The, is the design of the concert in, in, a, in such a way that you're going to talk about some of these pieces or are you going to, is a plan to just kind of, you're playing through, here's some program notes, here's kind of like the, you know, like an annotation essentially of, of what's happening. What, how are you styling that part? When I thought about this, I thought it was a good idea to do all of it. And then now I'm in the thick of it. I'm like, this is so much work. Um, so anyways, there, there are program notes. Um, like yeah. the composers all sent me their program notes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's great. Um, and that program is hopefully going to be sent to the printer today. Um, like fingers crossed because there's some edits that still need to be made. Um, but something else that I also did, I solicited each composer to make an intro video. So while we're doing logistics on stage, um, hopefully, and I didn't confirm with PAS that we're still able to show a video is that, the, um, like the Andrea Vinay will show up on the screen. She'll talk about her piece while they're not watching us move on the stage frantically, yeah. um, to move. Um, and that's something we're going to do this Sunday night. It's just practical logistics. I'm going to show the video while it's going on. And each video is about 40, 45 seconds to a minute. Yeah. And if they can't move all their stuff within a minute, we're going to do it again. Um, because with that time crunch, but um, that's just something I thought would be cool. Like everyone's kind of doing that now already with all the COVID stuff, people were doing a bunch of zoom meetings, like mm -hmm. we're kind of doing now yeah. or zoom master classes. And I thought like, why not have the composers themselves um, introduce their own piece? No, that's a good idea. It's with percussion. It's like, it's too bad that, it, that like now, I mean, it's great now, but it also, you just think of all the years where you just heard like, pipe down so we don't have to hear you talk about it. it's like where's the suspended symbol <laughs> <laughs> the smaller one <laughs> you know like people like yell yell whispering across right. the stage and i really hope it's a good distraction with yeah. the composers talking and not paying attention to what we're doing what i'm hoping that is not going to happen is that um like a student knocks over a symbol of course like crash i'm like oh well let's still look over there <laughs> um, like, nothing nothing to see here nothing to see here at all yeah. um something that also that again this is me trying to do i guess too much is that um i also added uh like background music for each composer mm. but i thought it would have been weird to put the piece that we're about to play um as the background music like you sure. hear it and then you're going to hear it again yeah, yeah. And so hopefully um, what I've done is found other percussion ensemble pieces that the composers wrote and put on there. And as the people are listening to it, um, they're like, Ooh, what, what's that piece that I kind of heard. And then they'll hopefully realize that's the same composer wrote that piece and then be more interested in their music and then look them up and um, play, program their music someday. That's yeah, it's a good thing. You don't want to put the, um, the Benny Hill. <laughs> yeah. That, that one. Sacks on there as, as you're, Maybe I should have that on cue, ready to go. When that symbol drops, I'll, I'll play, and then they'll just do some little dance and run away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you were creating the program, did you are you calling from like twenty five pieces? What was the, uh, did, or did it end up that you built up and realized like, okay, this is the limit of time that we can try to get everything in? 
Uh, it's a great question. It started with the whole idea of the different composers that I was trying to look up. Sure. Um, there are great resources out now from like looking at female composers, LGBTQ plus composers, black composers, um, and whatnot. And so I kind of went from there with the help of my grad students. They found the pieces that were written within those five years limit. And then from there, I kind of helped, cho- helped choose and then also went to the publishers and whatnot. And so it's kind of started from what pieces um, do you, did I think fits that composer representation, but then also what can my students play? Sure. Um, because, uh, they're not going to play any weird avant-garde stuff or like graphic score notation, which is cool, but, um, I don't know if people are really going to buy into that, um, at that type of concert with that type of personnel. We're trying to find the next piece that they want to play for their, for their program. Um, but then, um, it was, kind of figuring out the math, like this piece, but then figuring out the, the time length um, to make sure it all fits. Um, it was nervous wracking because when I had the 17 pieces initially, it was like at 76 minutes. And I was thinking if we spent one minute for transition between pieces, we're already over 90 minutes. Like this isn't going to work. Yeah. And so um, the logistics side like gives me nightmares. I think I woke up the other night thinking like, oh, what am, how am I going to fix this? Like, how is it going to work out? Yeah. Um, but Definitely just trying to, like I said earlier, um, composers, publishers, and then difficulty level um, were a good way to kind of, and hopefully um, um, whoever goes to the concert can see that there's a nice um, broad spectrum of different things that are represented. Now, what about equipment? Did you did you look into that in terms of stuff you were bringing, stuff that might be there you could use in terms of limiting or whittling down what you're playing? Uh, so I wish I had thought about that beforehand. (laughs) It it was more so like, Hey, um, we generally have all these instruments and I had planned. So in 2011, um, it's actually kind of cool. Um, that 10 years later, I'm bringing my students because in 2011, when I was at the university of Iowa, we performed the same concert. Um, and so 10 years later, I remember, or I guess 10 years earlier, I remember we brought everything that we need for the concert we didn't borrow anything. And it was just just easier that way. Um, this time around, um, I just, we could have brought all our stuff. Um, but, uh, since I have some great sponsors, especially with Yamaha, um, and some other companies, um, they were able to help provide some of the instruments. And so I think keyboard wise, all we really need to bring is a five octave marimba. Um, and it's, it's nice because they're already are bringing us some stuff. I know there's some logistic things that they have to do because the concert chamber competitions at the same time and whatnot. Oh, never mind. I remember we have to bring two glockenspiels and a five octave marimba and then a bunch of drums and other smaller stuff that will fit easier. Um, but I wish I had thought about that piece beforehand. Um, and then also the program order so that sure. uh, I had to move through the, all the instruments. Um, but I think it was more purely on the music side first, as opposed to instruments and logistics and whatnot. Yeah. I'd imagine that the, has, has it been a, a struggle to, to figure out a, you know, a program order that fits your ability to move from piece to piece while maybe also considering what might be a good opener and closer. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't, I don't know if you can tell, but um, like not on the screen, but I've definitely got more gray hair just from this semester or may have been from this COVID year in general. Sure. Yeah. Um, but like I got a haircut today and I can see all my gray hair a little bit more now, which is like, ah, it's, it's the stress of this uh, basic performance in particular, I think. Um, but it was interesting trying to make sure it all kind of flowed. Um, 
it could have just been like when I first initially put the program list um, in order, it could have been just whatever, but I think it flows pretty nice. We start with that rudimental piece that I mentioned is nice and loud and drummy. And then we go to more of a bigger percussion orchestra uh, piece. And then from there, there are pretty much three main stations on stage, the main uh, keyboard area in the center middle, and then there are like smaller quartets or uh, ensemble, chamber ensembles on either side. And so logistically it is working out, um, but it's again, still giving me nightmares and stuff like that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm curious about is that I, I always, I always know that like, this is a, this is kind of a, tends to be a fascinating, one of the more varied concerts that we typically have because of, of you know, the nature of what, what people are selecting and how they're thinking about it, but also that there's just so much music. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of times, I, I would bet for some some people who are watching who are considering programming because this is a lot is about per, what you, what kinds of stuff you program. You know, they, there's a lot of times when when you hear something, and and I'm sure I'm wondering if you've had this a, a encounter yourself in the audience where you you're they're playing a bunch of stuff and you're just like, no, like, eh, maybe you know you're you're making these judgments on the kind of like right off the bat, right? It's it's def- definitely hard because. <laughs> There's just so much out there that you could choose. Sure. And I think a lot of these programs are just a reflection of the, the, the directors and like kind of what they're into as well. Um, and then especially, I think the, none, nothing that on the program, maybe one piece is a little bit more challenging and out there um, for the students because they're not used to that contemporary side as yeah. much. Um, but definitely uh, it's, I think all of them are enjoying the music and uh, if Hopefully, um, whoever comes to it, I know if you're able to come to it, yep. um, whatever, because I know a lot of people come in and out, and I, I, I've done that before. It's kind of one of those things like, hey, what's on the program? Uh, I'll watch this for a little bit. That's awesome. Like, I know that that composer. Um, but then hopefully people can find the pieces later on that they don't see and can still program it. Um, I guess something else that I wanted to mention, because we were talking about the time length of it being 90 minutes and all the stress that goes along with it, yep. is um, in 2011 when we did, it was a 90-minute concert. And then for a period of time, I don't know how many years it was because I went to those basics as well. Yeah. They, they trimmed it down to a 60-minute concert, which sounds amazing because that's more manageable. But then I don't know when they put they bumped it back up to 90 minutes. And so, um, again, 90 minutes is just is, with no intermission at all either. It's just 90 minutes straight of just playing the entire time. Yeah. Well, I guess because it's a literature session, you want to, I mean, this, like, I think of this when I've gone to band master stuff and, and they'll, they'll just try to like, you know, there's like way more literature that comes out for band, I think, than comes out for percussion, but it's the kind of thing where you're just like, we just want to like get to some, every, like some part of all of these, right? you know? And, and so it's a lot of just like, here's two minutes. Cool. You you kind of got the sense, <laughs> like, you know, so I, I feel like it, it's a good for, you know, for I, I think of it from the audience perspective that it's good to just try to get that it's better to have more stuff on this one. Sure. Um, even though, but as you said, way more stressful for you. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's also fun in a way. Yeah. Because like I, I enjoy the logistics side of it and making sure it works, but mm. I had no idea how hard it was going to be with that long of a program with 16 pieces and whatnot. Yeah. So it, it, it was fun, but not fun. 
<laughs> it has been um, a good challenge for my students. Um, so something that was interesting is with COVID and everything else like that, the students that I have now are just from two years ago when we, one basic are different. Like numbers are just lower in general. I don't know if you're seeing that in Missouri as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the marching band isn't as big. Uh, the drum line for sure, um, which I uh, d- deal directly with, is a lot smaller than usual. Um, but talent-wise, which was not a great thing. So when I mentioned the 2019, um, we won the, when we won the concert chamber competition, um, there were five students that participated in that. In 2020, if we were to have performed at PASIC, all five of them would have been back for that. This year, since now two years after they won that, um, only two of them out of the five are left. Um, one graduated, uh, one is still here, but now is going to biology and medicine, so he's not really doing music as much. Um, one's going to student teaching, actually two are going to student teaching and aren't involved anymore. And one, the other one that's still here is stayed for his master's. And so it's really only like one student who's really here from that. And so the students that were here and then some other students also around that time went on to graduate school. And so it was kind of a rebuilding year with a basic performance um, looming. And so it definitely had its challenges, but they definitely have stepped up. I'm looking forward to, again, that's 530, 630 when we're all done and don't have to worry about it. And they, they go do whatever college students do at PSIC. I don't know what they do because I don't want to know. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then we're, we're just good after that. Yeah. They, they invite you and you're like, I think, I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go hang out with the adults. Right. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And last, but not least, on our PASIC 2021 preview episodes, Texas-based Bowron specialist and percussion educator, Kara Wildman. Kara presented an intro to Bowron playing in PASIC in 2018, and she's back to present the next step in playing the instrument with other folks, performing on Saturday at 9 a.m. in the Wabash Ballroom. Here's Kara talking about the specifics of her session, as well as some items particular to performing on Bowron in the United States. So, Kara, tell, tell me what you're doing, what you're presenting at PASIC, and also when and where you're doing that at PASIC. I am presenting at PASIC on Saturday morning at 9 a.m. I think it's room 120, but let me double check here. It's going to be one hour, and I'm talking about basically what to do um, once you have the basics of playing Bowron, like how to figure out what the heck you're supposed to play beyond that. Um, So especially for me, coming from more of a classical sort of background, um, that was one of the biggest challenges for me to overcome in traditional music is we'd be sitting in a rehearsal trying to put something together, and it's like, what the heck am I supposed to do? No one's... No one's giving me anything or telling me what to play. Like, how do I know what to do beyond just these basic patterns? So that's kind of what I'm talking about. Is this kind of like the the next step beyond the stuff you talked about three years ago in your presentation? Yes, for sure. So assuming that people already know how to hold the stick, hold the drum, what are the basic tune types? What are some basic things you could play? How to sort of go 
beyond that? Because that's honestly one of the biggest questions I get when I'm teaching at festivals or things. It's like, okay, well, you know, I've got my real patterns that I like. Now, how do I get from point, point A to point B where it's really actually engaging with the tunes, but also the, the, the different musicians that I'm playing with? Um, and if you add in, you know, playing with like another backer, like a guitar player, bazooki or piano, that adds a whole nother level of things you have to consider when you're trying to figure out what to play. Hopefully people will enjoy it. I'm bringing, um, Margaret is coming again this year, my fiddle player. Um, and then Alan Murray is a great guitar player and bazooki player and singer. So he'll be joining us and have a special guest appearance by um, a friend in California, James Yoshizawa, is going to play some bones for a few sets, I think. What are some of the kind of typical styles or, or things that you have to kind of already know or be aware of when you're, if you're with, you know, other players? And I kind of like, if any of you are, are better at a, visual learners like reading helps you information process information better. I wrote an article for PAS that's kind of outlining what I'm going to talk about that just came out in this October's publication. So the first thing I do is try and figure out what kind of tune it is. So let's say, okay, I've listened to it and I know it's a reel. So that gives me my time signature and my basic patterns. The next thing I want to do is figure out how many parts are in this reel. Um, so let's say if it's a two part reel, I might use one pattern um, I'm, I call that my motor rhythm. So just like a, a basic groove that mm -hmm. I want to use for the A part of the tune. And then when it changes to the B part, I want to pick a different basic groove that I'm going to use. So that, those would be the first main steps. What kind of tune, how many parts, and pick your basic patterns you're going to play. After that, I'm going to try and figure out what sort of makes each tune unique and special. Um, and some tunes might have like multiple things that to me really stick out like, oh, this is cool. There's an accent in this place, or maybe the melody has a interesting variation or there's a role or something like that. Um, and that may vary from person to person, you know, and depending on where you are in your journey and how much you've listened to other players and, um, you know, different things might stick out to different people. And that's, okay and not just okay but encouraged and acceptable and expected that different people are going to interpret tunes different ways so anyway just figuring out sort of what things stick out to you as a player that you want to kind of emphasize in the tune and then I'm going to use that basic pattern that I figured out before as my sort of home base but then try and pull things from the melody that stick out and try and emphasize those in the way that I think is best so that would be if I'm just playing with a melody player only. If we add in like a guitar player or something like that, then that adds a whole nother level of things you have to listen to. Um, I want to pay attention to like what their strum patterns are. So if they're doing something like, you know, really light and tasty, kind of high and tinkly, mm -hmm. then I'm obviously not going to be going all balls to the wall, jamming out, using lots of like something really aggressive, right? It's just, it's being a good musician and a good listener. Like what suits the music? Um, and I don't think that's going to be new to anyone at this convention. It's just figuring out how to apply those same ideas in different ways. Um, so listening to their things like their strum patterns. Um, I listen a lot to the harmonic rhythm on the guitar player or the, the other backers, you know, so if they're doing like a rundown with the chord change, chord, 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 I might try and pull that from them as well. So it's a lot going on at once. Um, and I'm just trying, I've, I've tried really hard to sort of make a, 
system that people can kind of break down in, into smaller chunks and understand and realize that, you know, as this, as you do this more and more, like I very rarely, unless I'm doing like a recording session or some kind of gig where I need to play the same thing every single time, then I don't sit down anymore and, and do this step by step. This is just like a basic formula. I don't even, I don't like that word, a system to kind of help break down these ideas. And then the more you play, you can be able to do it on fly. When you are uh, playing with someone, whether they're uh, playing melody line, if they're playing chords, do you know right off the bat that it's one type of piece over another or do you have to, are they, are you waiting for some kind of cue from, from them? Yeah. You, you know, pretty straight away, uh, depending on what, what the time signature is, what kind of tune it's going to be. It expands to the amount of players that you're playing with. Is it more, is it for you more fun? Like, cause you're getting more interaction or more rhythmic interaction from the other members. I think that really just kind of depends on the setting just because like, let's say for example, for if I'm going to a session in a pub, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to play much differently there than I would at a gig or like a recording because, you know, in, in a pub setting or like a session, it's just for the fun, it's for the crack. You know, you're going to have all different kinds of players there of all different all different points on their musical journeys. Mm-hmm. And the point is not to go into a setting like that and try and like show off all your crazy tricks or your skills or whatever. Sure. Um, and, and me specifically, you know, I want to make sure I'm given good time for everyone to kind of hold things together, depending on how spread out we are. And, you know, if it's loud in the pub or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would play, um, you know, and especially again, and this is kind of goes into a bigger discussion about session etiquette and things like that. But if it's new players, like a new session that I've never been to before, I'm definitely just going to be pretty like straight ahead. Cause you don't know what people like or what they don't like. Sure. And, um, it's just sort of, sort of respectful to kind of take it easy. Um, you know, and if I'm playing with people, I know really, really well, like Margaret, who I've played with all the time, that gives me a little bit more free reign because I know um, her and I know how she plays and I know that she's not going to like be offended or anything if I play a certain way Um, Mm -hmm. where, you know, if it's, if it's something smaller, like maybe a recording session, obviously we would have planned that out more in advance and you'll probably have a lot more uh, less spontaneity. Maybe there's still some of that, but you want to have it planned out what you're going to do. Um, in regards to variations and just making sure that I'm doing what's called for musically, both with the melody players and if there's other backers. Cause you're referring to how, if you, well, for, I mean, for one, if you're in a pub, it's, you're, you're just providing music. It's not, they're not coming to watch you show off your Bowron skills. It's like, no, no, it's just it, for us to have some fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's like other drum set or or jazz things where you're just like, just give me two and four. Like the I saw you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's a great. That's a great analogy. Yeah, very similar to that. Something like that. Yeah. Um, well, so what? Uh, take me through a little bit though. When you said uh, like etiquette for the for recording, because if you're recording, then it sounds like. <laughs> 
okay, it's it's more planned, but you're I guess the the more nuance is gonna that's when you can actually show that, right? Um yes. Um as far as like etiquette goes, I think I would I think there'd be more sort of unspoken rules as far as etiquette goes in a session than like a recording. Mm-hmm. Um I mean recording wise, you know, obviously you need to show up with your music learned. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh studio time is not cheap and yeah. you don't want to show up and not have your stuff charted out or whatever. Um and again, I don't I don't generally like chart things out unless um, it is a situation like that where we're recording and I know I need to play the same thing every time and I need to have it down, you know, down mm-hmm. pat. Um, so I, I did some recording for a friend, uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago. And I actually charted out the whole thing just cause it was a, a jig with the hits were in like places you wouldn't expect them. And I knew if I didn't have something, then I was going to screw it up and, you know, don't, don't want to be wasting his time and money by not having my stuff down. I would say that for like recording etiquette, but for session etiquette, oh man, I should have brought notes on this because this is a big, a big topic. <laughs> um, okay. For session etiquette, I mean, it's kind of just a lot of it is common sense. Mm-hmm. And I, I was teaching a festival this weekend, and I, we, I talked about this with my Baron class a lot because, especially here in the U.S., and I don't know why sessions are so different here than they are in Ireland but like I have had way more issues as a baron player playing in the U.S. than than I ever did in Ireland and you kind of think it would be the other way around um so I don't know where that comes from but just like to give you an example you know there's all these sort of forums out there for Irish music it's like the equivalent of drum corps planet right it's like do you do you really want to go on there or is that just going to be a bunch of garbage and people saying crap about drum lines and you know whatever couch couch judges armchair judges right right so you go on these forums and it's like oh well if you go to a new session you need to sit in the corner with your case and then you know someone will invite you over and then you can get out your drum and then you wait until they ask you to play and then you know you need to play it's just like these ridiculous things that you know it's like who came up with these rules and So I told my class, I was like, don't do that. If you go to a session, don't you freaking sit in the corner with your little brush tipper by yourself and like apologize for your existence. Like that is not acceptable, (laughs) you know? And it's just like, why, who is creating these arbitrary hoops for people to jump through? Um, So that being said, like I went to a session when I was in Ireland and uh, with some fantastic melody players, my friend invited me, and I think the pub was called The Diamond, and mm. it was Blackie O'Connell, who's a fantastic piper, and Siobhan O'Donnell. I mean, so, sorry, Siobhan Peoples. He's an amazing fiddle player, and, you know, I thought that's what I was supposed to do, so I'm, like, sitting there with my drum not playing, mm-hmm. and Siobhan actually pulled my friend aside and was like, what the heck is your friend doing? Like, she's here, and she's not playing. Like, it made them really uncomfortable, and I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing. Yeah. And that was not what I was supposed to be doing. (laughs) Um, So all that being said, there seem to be a lot of differences in the session scene between the U.S. and um, and Ireland. I think, honestly, you know, as percussionists, we have to deal with that anyway. 
people sure. think, oh, you play percussion. That's not a real instrument, you know? Right. And, and that's, there's just certain stereotypes. You have to have a thick enough skin to kind of overcome mm-hmm. and ignore the haters. Um, so, you know, all that being said, it's just common sense. If you're coming into a new session and you're a new person, like, no, you shouldn't be starting every set of tunes. The more established players who are there all the time yep. and, you know, well-respected in that community, they're the ones who need to make those calls, right? And don't play too loud. Make sure you're playing in time. There doesn't mm-hmm. need to be more than one bow around player at a time. Like all these things are common sense yeah. that you think people would know, but I don't know why, why and when common sense, you know, manners got turned into these sort of arbitrary things, hoops that you have to jump through. Anyway, sorry, that was kind of a long rant. I don't know if anyone actually wanted to hear about that, but I'm, I've been thinking about it all weekend after some of my students told me some of their experiences at their own home sessions. Yeah, no, I, that's, that's super fascinating. Cause it's not a, I mean, it's just a different environment. And I, I was thinking about, cause like art, for instance, I would never have thought about, okay, well, what happens if, if I'm being invited to something uh, as a Bowerman player am I expecting someone else to be playing when I'm invited? Like, if, so that would be one thing I would know. You mean like, like another Bowerman player? Yeah. So are you expecting to run into another Bowerman player if you're being invited to something? Yeah. I mean, there might be another Bowerman player there. You don't really know. It's not, it's a lot of these sessions are open. So it's mm-hmm. kind of just who shows up from week to week. Yeah. Um, so if I get there and there's another Bowerman player, like, especially if that's their local session, I'm going to defer to them. You know, but you'll still play, right? I'll still play, but like, it's, it's sort of common courtesy that you wouldn't have more than one person at once. I mean, that'd be like having two drum set players. It's like, well, who sets the groove and does this half of the room follow? You know, it just gets, it's too sloppy. You can't tell what's going on. Um, you know, so it, it sort of depends if I'm going to a session and sometimes they'll, you know, I'll just go up to him and say, Hey, what, wh- how do you guys do it here? That's pretty normal. If it's, mm. you know, we're all in the same club, we know how it works in these sessions. And so to just go and be, Hey, like, you know, what's, what's the story at this session. And they'll tell you like, Oh, we trade tunes. So maybe mm. if it's a set of reels, they'll play the first one and then they'll sort of give you a nod when they change tunes and say, yeah, like take it. Or yeah. it might be whole sets. So they might play the whole set of reels and then give you the next set, the jigs or whatever comes after that. So um, okay. that being said, you know, if there's, there's a couple Bowerman players here locally that I play with a lot and mm-hmm. we might have, we might both play at the session just because I know how, um, like a good friend of mine, Rob, he's actually the one who makes my drums and mm-hmm. we've done lots of gigs with two Bowerons or sessions with two Bowerons where both of us will play just because, um, you know, it's easier. I know, I know how he plays. He knows how I play we can sort of create something that's going to work nicely and not um, be distracting to anyone. Um, Yeah. So, but again, this is all, all just things you kind of have to, to, there's not really any hard, hard, fast rules. You kind of just have to feel it out when you get there and see, see what it's like. Right. Okay. Okay. I, I think I understand versus going in with what you think is some type of, pre-programmed etiquette you just you basically just go in and be like what's how's this go (laughs) yeah (laughs) right i'll fit in just tell me just tell me the the deal right right 
Yeah. I mean, generally, you know, it's generally speaking, it's usually one at a time, but besides that, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of hard to advise people on this because you just don't really know until you get there what it's going to be like. Yeah. Um, which is maybe why, maybe, maybe why these sort of arbitrary roles were created in the first place, although they're not necessarily helpful. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yes. That definitely is true. (laughs) It definitely sounds like it's not helpful. Some of this, it sounds like, is when you are getting into um, a situation where you just might not know, because you're saying common sense, but that common sense gets developed over a period of time where you're learning, right? Yeah, exactly. So maybe I'm, I'm so I'm wondering if some of the common sense is your your development of it is directly from being in Ireland, and maybe someone's is coming from the United States and they're playing in an Irish bar. Could that be some of the, some of what's could be different? I think uh, a huge amount of my education did not happen in the classroom. It was a majority of that was in the pubs and you know, the more different people you play with, you know, not just learning the tunes, but learning um, the really sort of intricacies of the, the style and how someone could play this tune one way and someone else could play the same tune a totally different way. Right. And how do I back that? And how yeah. do I read these subtle cues from the other musicians, you know, that are going to let me know, Oh, Hey, I like what you're doing or I don't like what you're doing, you know, and I'm not going to say anything or I don't like what you're doing and I'm going to be very vocal about it. Right. Yeah. So right. But I don't know. I mean, the, and this kind of leads into a whole nother discussion and feel if I, if I'm getting too sidetracked, feel free to cut me off at any time, but, um, yeah. of just like, what is tradition? And I'm actually, and I don't have the date for you. It's on, um, Friday, I think I'm speaking on the frame drum panel and that's like oh. kind of the, the whole topic is honoring the tradition. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think for me, like coming back to the U.S. after living abroad, I I don't think I realized how differently we as Americans think of tradition versus Irish people. Um, Because here, tradition, in my opinion, is thought of as this sort of museum piece that needs to be preserved and never changes, right? You know, if you think of like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, you would never dream of going into the gig and saying, oh, well, I don't like what he wrote there. I'm going to redo it. Right? right. That would yeah. never happen. And and when I was in Ireland, and I hope I didn't tell this story on the last time I was on your podcast. but It was three years was, ago. It's fine. <laughs> Go ahead. Knock it out. I was in a lecture with one of my professors, and she said, George, just sort of offhand, like the worst thing anyone could say to you as a traditional musician is that you sound like someone else. And I was sitting there oh, just yeah. like – shocked like shocked i don't think disturbed is too strong of a word to use i mean after coming from like college where you're doing drum set transcriptions and they were like yeah well you missed this grace note and that's a crash symbol not a ride symbol and you don't sound like chad sexton so go back and do it again right and so for them to for her to say that was shocking and i actually emailed her and scheduled a meeting and she was shocked that i was shocked she was like well i don't understand why this is such an issue for you And, but it was like, you know, and anyway, she said, yeah, it's really important that you're sort of rooted in the tradition and you have respect for that. Mm -hmm. And you understand the people that came before you 
But like you, it's up to you to take that information and put your own spin on it, make it your own, continue to push the tradition forward. Mm -hmm. And to have that sort of like freedom was terrifying, honestly. Yeah. Um, You know, just because you're so, I was so worried, like, I'm not Irish, I'm American. What am I even doing over here? Do I even have a, like a right to be playing this music? And now you're telling me, yeah. And you know what I mean? It was just, yeah. it was crazy. So I've, I've wondered, and I have not done any research on this or anything. It's just speculation, but I've wondered if that's why the session scene is so different in Ireland versus in the U S because people, people here, you know, and they, they were forced to leave their homelands for a lot yeah. of reasons, whether right. it was famine or war, or there was no work or whatever. And so, Religious you know, that reasons. is, religious reasons, whatever, like those cultural things are very precious and it's understandable that people would want to protect them. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that's why it's so different. It just, it is really different. (laughs) Um, so yeah, there you go. There's your random side note that you didn't ask for, but you got anyway. No, that's no, that's (laughs) fascinating. You're showcasing how it's a, a living tradition. Yes. And and that, and that's, I think where versus a, it, you know, it was in this box and we have to keep it in this box forever. This is the, this is the box. And it seems like in Ireland, it's like, no, it's just, it's part of life. And you're, uh, if you know it well enough, you're going to, your contribution is actually not, is actually like you, the way you play, that's you expanding the tradition. Right. Yeah, totally. Not, not, I guess what they're saying is not, not mimicking someone else. Right. Right. Totally. So I know I see that. I think that's a, I think that's a good analogy. Um, I, I'm, I would be fascinated to hear what other, other people think of this um, because it's, yeah, I, I don't know that I, I it, this is not a kind of thing I, I think about much at all, honestly. In, in a lot no. Of, uh, yeah. But it makes sense if it's coming from another tradition. I mean, there's a lot of. I think where I think I, I would I would have had some experience with this was just like when I've written steel band music, mm-hmm. and and there's a little bit. There's always like a part of how much of this is gonna um, should this be like in honor of calypso or soca or you know large pan style traditions and how much of this is just a different ensemble that plays a different kind of music that I'm right. writing for. Right. Right. So yeah. maybe that's it. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, I never thought about any of this until I went over there and yeah. realized, realized, I mean, I'm, I think that was very naive of me to, to assume that people thought the same way about music in every place in the world. Like no one thinks about anything in the same place, in the same way, you know? Right. Um, so why would it be, why would they think of music the same way? Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been really sort of eye opening. I mean, and something I'm still, geez, when, how long ago did I get back? It's been a, it's been a while since I've been back and I'm still, it's something I'm still thinking through and trying to figure out my place in all of it. And how do I, how to be respectful of all those that came before me and still put my own stamp on things, you know? So yeah, a hard line to draw and I'm not sure anyone can do it for you, but right. That's really interesting. Um, 
I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you 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 went into the rant and just decided <laughs> to just go right for it. I think that was that was nicely done. Oh, well, good. A huge amount of thanks to all of my guests on both of these previews. Alexandros Fragiscatos, Danielle Moreau, Brian Calhoun, and Donnie Johns on part one, and Quentin Millette, Elizabeth De La Mater, Juan Alamo, Oliver Molina, and Kara Wildman on today's part two. I will be presenting my full episodes with all of them after PASIC, but I look forward to catching all of them or attempting to during their sessions this year. And again, a rave this week is just, if you're able to, go to PASIC. Enjoy the concerts, clinics, expo hall, panel sessions, but really all of the chances you get to reconnect with folks you haven't seen in a while in and around our percussion world. I'll be there as well, and I hope to get a chance to chat with all of you at some point. So let's do this. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time, or I'll catch you at PASIC. Until then. Thank you.